Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. So many of you know that uh, obviously there were some events in Atlanta that occurred a few weeks ago. And what's odd about all that is that two, uh, just two days prior to that, on August 7th, Bliss and I recorded a podcast on shoulder dystocia uh, in the fashion that we usually do, where we, you know, we have our banter and then we take a deep dive into shoulder dystocia. Uh, who would have known that two days later it would be the number one story probably in the world of this terrible, horrible tragedy um, that occurred in south of Atlanta? So we wanted to preface, because if you see shoulder dystocia as our topic on the podcast, everyone's going to think we're going to be talking about this case, and we weren't. This was just our usual deep dive into it, but we have some really strong feelings about it. Bless you, I know you do. Yeah, I just wanted to offer our deepest condolences to Jessica Ross and Trevon Isaiah Taylor Sr. and their beautiful baby, Trevon Isaiah Taylor Jr. This is unimaginable. And I just want to make sure that those of you who are providers feel skilled in shoulder dystocia. You know, we're talking about maneuvers and stuff, but um, hands-on skills are very important. So making sure that you learn because the things that we're talking about today in the podcast are life-saving measures. We don't know everything that happened. We're waiting to hear more. But we, Stu and I agree that what happened should never have happened. We will get back to you guys when we have more information to break it down a little bit further. But we just couldn't release this podcast without first letting you know that uh, it was recorded prior to all of this and that we have a lot of sorrow for everyone, you know, including uh, those pregnant mamas who are experiencing and thinking about this while carrying their babies. So we just want to send our love to everyone and thank you for being our fellow travelers and hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah. And there's no, there's just, there is no solace for anybody in this, in this story. The birth workers that were there, I'm sure are traumatized beyond belief as well. Absolutely. Anybody who's just even reading about it. And you, it was a good point, you know, mothers who are pregnant now and future mothers who, when they, doctor brings up shoulder dystocia now this is the image that they're going to have in their head and this is a this is unforeseeable unforgivable um event that should never happen and so if you have things to concern yourself about with your future pregnancies this isn't one of them don't let that happen okay so i hope you enjoy the regular podcast <laughs> on shoulder dystocia and we'll be back uh, with more information on this as it comes out thanks everybody Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night from Chicago. Chicago, Hi. Chicago. Blah, 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 blah. I don't know how it goes, but I know there's a song about Chicago. How are I you? And Sedona, but I don't have a song for Sedona. <laughs> well, Sedona is its own song. It's true. If you're here, it has its own song. It's very That's true. Right. It has its own resonance and with the earth, and it's a great place. You know, I sort of feel, I sort of have the same feeling when I'm in my hometown of Kanab. Yeah. Not, it's quite, it's like uh, the poor side of Sedona, but it's still 
very there's very there's a resonance there that I feel magnetic fields or whatever it is. It's really cool. So what are you doing in Sedona looking so beautiful with your glasses on? <laughs> well, I have to say, first, it looks like you got a haircut this week. I did. So I noticed. I just want to say you look very handsome. <laughs> well, you know who cuts my hair, don't you? You? Yeah. Good job. I another be- another benefit from the lockdown. Yeah, you had me cut it in the pandemic. Yeah, and I didn't realize how easy it is to just buzz your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. We found some perks. So I am um, at my brother's home in Sedona. It's absolutely lovely. I got together with some family that live here yesterday um, on my dad's side that I don't get to see very often. And so that was really, really fun. And they're off to the Grand Canyon today, but I decided to stay back and work and podcast with you. So. And then, uh, you know, off on on some adventures next week, traveling and studying midwifery and breach. And it's going to be a lot of great things coming up, but um, not back on call until the fall, September. Yeah, that, that's right. We're meeting three days early, partly because of our weird travel schedules over the next week. We thought we'd get one in today. And I'm glad we did because it's a cool day here in Chicago. Just want to say, speaking of buzzed heads, uh, I'm here with Christine Loria and, oh, yeah. and David Hayes. We're sharing a uh, Airbnb, and we're here teaching breach delivery uh, at Northwestern University, which for me is a first, and I'm thrilled to be here. Amazing. And I want to give a shout out to the program at Northwestern University for inviting us to be here, but also the people that I met, the residents. And the attending physicians and a few of the other, I don't like to use the word ancillary, but I don't want to, you know, there were some nurses and I think some midwives, but mostly residents, chief residents and attending physicians attended. There were 20, 24 people on our, on our Friday class and uh, we split up into three rooms and David and Christine taught um, upright breech birth and I taught lithotomy breech birth because it's important in a hospital setting where 80% of their clients are going to have epidurals. By the way, they call them patients at Northwestern. Uh (laughs) Of course they do. But um, this program is really far ahead of what I thought. So when I ridicule a lot of times what's going on in the medical community, I, I, you know, we never say always. And this program is a really good program. So if anybody is looking to go into medical school or re- resident to want to becoming an OB. Um, and they're worried about getting beat up totally while they're trying to keep their feet flat on the ground. Um, this is a program that I, you know, I don't know the details, but just spending a day with these doctors was great. And I think that this would be a program that you should apply to if you want to do that. I just, again, a shout out to Northwestern. They're teaching forceps. They're teaching their residents breach delivery. I don't know how many will come out and actually do it, but they'll know what to do if that happens. And that's that's fantastic. And so and being with David and Christine uh, has been just a treat because we sit around for hours sharing stories and talking. And it's great. Oh, you should have turned on. You should have turned on a, a podcast recording with all you what you guys have been doing. Look at me. <laughs> I don't think so. Some of what we were saying was probably not for recording stuff. Oh, 
But I did have a question in, in um, you sharing about, because normally the majority of your classes are midwives and every once in a while you'll get a doctor or a resident. So how did it feel different? Were there different questions? Like, what was that like for you teaching to so many? Because I know that this is a dream. This is something that you've been talking about and wanting to do for a while. So how, how was that experience? I think it confirmed to me the hunger that most young doctors have to learn the skills that make my profession unique. There was nobody there that was anti-breach or, you know, the kind of thing that we see all the time, banning breach delivery, or you can only do a breach delivery if you have an eight-pound baby or less, and you're a multip and all those restrictions that they put on it. They have some restrictions, but they don't, they do delayed cord clamping. They don't take the baby to the warmer. We, I, we were talking about a lot of these things. I baffled them for one second when I said we were talking about things the hospitals do and about how sometimes they get caught up in their hamster wheel. And so they were coming, they were pushing back a little bit, which is which is fine because I can take it, they can take it. I, again, I found them very eager, but one of the things I said to them when we were, we were pushing back and forth, I said, so, okay, so tell me, why does a pregnant woman have to wear a hospital gown? And there was like absolute silence. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought about it and they said, because it's sort of what we do here at the hospital. I go, exactly. Exactly. I said, right. why? But why? Think, why? And then and then and then we moved on. But I'm just saying there there it was great. It was great. Some of them, so I, I think the ones that didn't know anything caught on sometimes a little faster than the ones that had probably been partially or poorly trained in the past. Yeah, but you could see some people have real good skills and other people don't. Very the same as midwives. I mean, they're the same. Some yeah, doctors yeah. are good at this. Some doctors are gonna. It takes more time. It's just like anything. Learning anything. Yeah. Again, it was great. And and Chicago is a great city right now. That Lollapalooza is here, which is not fun for me because I looked for tickets today because it's Sunday and I thought maybe I'll have nothing to do today. And they're $500 a piece. And I said, eh, I'm not going to go see the Red Hot Chili Peppers for $500 outside when it might rain. So, but it uh, makes the city more crowded. Uh, yesterday, I did something very fun. I, I have a cousin that's been my cousin. My Well, he's been my cousin all my life, but he's been like the little brother I never had. He was my little cousin when I was growing up in Minneapolis. And, and he took me to a Cubs game yesterday. And fun. it was fun. Yeah. It, was, it was really fun. I mean, the the crowd. I think I, I I never got the same feeling at a Dodger game. So it was it was fun. They love their team and they beat the Braves, who are the best team in baseball right now. And so it was it was a fun fun day. And then we went out for drinks afterwards. And I had a couple of whiskeys and Ubered home. And thank God I Ubered home because <laughs> I staggered up the stairs and oh boy, yeah, and that was a lot of fun. Good. So uh, that's what I've been doing. Next week, we're off to Louisville. Oh, speaking of Louisville, okay. So I'm talking with David this morning. You'll love this because you did the same thing. So I said, uh, so we're going to, you know, I'll, we were talking somehow and I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to Louisville uh, uh, tomorrow afternoon. And he goes, well, why are you going to Louisville? It's in Lexington. And I go, no, it's in Louisville. He says, no, it's in Lexington. <laughs> and then we look it up. And of course, it's in Louisville. But I did the same thing on the podcast one time. And you guys caught me. I think Nathan or both of you, caught, you and Nathan both caught me, I think, yeah. saying Lexington. So he booked his flight to Lexington. So he had to change his flight. Uh. 
Do you want to tell you want to tell your little story? Well, yeah. So Stu and I are go hopefully um, to the farm, and then we were going to go to what I thought was Memphis, and so I booked my flight from Memphis to Puerto Vallarta, where I'm meeting with Lindsay Milas for his her retreat in Mexico in Salulita. And, um, and then Stu's corrected me a couple of times and I don't know why I keep thinking Memphis. And so I sent him my itinerary and he said, uh, we are leaving from Nashville, aren't we? And I said, Oh, darn it. I keep doing that. So I had, luckily they were really nice. Cause you know how it is sometimes with, with, uh, buying airline tickets and stuff. They're like, Nope, no refunds, no changes. You're just screwed. And I thought, Oh my gosh, but they were very nice. And given that it was like an hour and a half later, they changed my flight. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's it, it's very easy to do this stuff when you've got a million things on your mind. I mean, it's kind of like you're talking on your phone when you're ready to leave the house and you're looking all over for your phone. <laughs> your glasses are on your head and you're like, where yeah, are my glasses? Your glasses are on your forehead and you're looking all over for your glasses. It's the same sort of thing. But it's funny that you did it. And then the very next day, I think uh, David did the same thing. <laughs> and thank God. And and for me, I'm the scrambled brain one. So I'm the one that's usually doing these things. And I caught both of these. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I saved you guys both a little bit of agony. Hey, what are we talking about today? Um, today, we're going to talk about shoulder dystocia because we had referred to a shoulder dystocia episode and then realized we've never actually done the topic. We talk about it through um, listening, um, reading listeners' letters occasionally, but we haven't done a whole episode. So we decided that's what we would do today. Right. But, and before we get to that, I wanted to just uh, do a couple of things just to, just to laugh a little bit, I think. Um, so do you know how you get these spam messages in your regular email and it says, you know, unsubscribe and you can click on unsubscribe. Yes. So I was talking with David this morning like the more I click on unsubscribe, the more junk mail I get. So David looks at me and goes, don't you know that unsubscribe means we know you're there? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's really, a, it's really when you unsubscribe, you're actually telling them that you actually saw their email. So they're going to send you more emails. That's not cool. Well, I don't know that that's true, but it's what it seems like. Funny. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. Oh, and then, um, I want to remind everybody, please, that who corresponds with Bliss and I, that when we respond, please check your spam folders, because I'm getting some responses to me from some of you in spam folder, and I know that sometimes I'll send a message out, and then for whatever reason, Yahoo Mail send, puts a little reminder there a few days later to follow up, and I'll say, just following up, Dr. Stu, and then somebody will write me back saying, oh, I didn't really see your first email because it went to spam. So. If you write me for any reason, I always respond. So if you don't hear from me, check your junk. <laughs> check your junk, right? Not that junk, but yeah. All right. Um, you want to tell us a little bit briefly? I don't know that. Did we talk about this on the last podcast about about the VBAC ban being lifted in Santa Barbara? Did we talk about that? We, we didn't. Did. I don't feel like there's that much to say, but. Um, those of you who have um, have been avid listeners, you know that in um, in Santa Barbara for many many years there has been a ban on VBACs, um, including refusing to give women epidurals and pain relief if they came in refusing a cesarean. 
So it's been totally unethical, by the way. I mean, just criminal (laughs) behavior. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Stu, they, there's a, um, couple of doulas in Santa Barbara, um, who have, who are the leaders of the, the local, uh, VBAC ICANN membership. And they have for many years been putting on this panel to put some pressure on the hospital and educate the community on what was going on in their area. People would often drive to Ventura to be able to get these services, which is about 40 minute drive from Santa Barbara. So it's pretty ridiculous. And so last, we always do it in the fall. It's coming up in September, this panel and community gathering that we do. And um, last year they said that they were going to lift it. And um, this year they officially announced that it has been lifted um, and they've called and, and asked questions just to make sure from different sources. And it seems like everybody's on board that um, if you go into cottage in Santa Barbara, you will be able to attempt to have a VBAC. However, I um, commented on Instagram, on a couple of the posts, just reminding people that just because they are tolerant of VBAC or they're saying that they lifted the ban does not necessarily mean that you have providers that feel comfortable with that, which means that the likelihood of having a successful VBAC is still not as high as it would be if you utilized your local midwives who really love and support VBAC families. So And my cynical self would say that the reason that they didn't institute it right away when they announced it last fall was they said that they they needed to get more doctors, more laborists. I'm just curious. Did they really actually get more laborists? Oh, you're nodding. Oh, they did. Okay. Okay. I thought, you know, because we all at the time thought that that was something that might just be an excuse for them to be able to just get the heat off their back, but not actually do anything. So they actually did hire more laborists. Oh, good. Okay. They're staffed now and they feel comfortable with offering this option at this point to the community. Well, they got a long way to go to catch up to Northwestern, but um, it's a start. <laughs> <laughs> breach, breach birth next in Santa Barbara. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break for one of our favorite sponsors and we'll be right back. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague and her company BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first, you know, beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages, so cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, So you can do it right out of your home. 
Um, and then, of course, they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30-day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro- program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah, I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She's a, she was a chiropractor in L.A. before before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we we support them wholeheartedly because... This kind of a program is great for our our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com. That's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with a number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Berlin Instincts neighborhood. And we're back. I love that. I love I love being back. <laughs> right. I missed you. I miss you during the commercials, even though we're talking, it's pre-recorded. So uh, I, don't, I don't actually get to see you talking. We're talking about shoulder dystocia today. I have... Uh, I have a couple of notes from people, and I think you have one as well. Uh, do you want to start? Sure. Okay. Why don't you read, Why don't you read a letter from whoever it's from? I forgot. Sure. Um, this is from Tara McDougall, and she says, "I'm a birth doula, and I'm so thankful for the work you do to help educate and empower women." I have a client who desires a natural delivery. This is mostly motivated by her mother had two children with shoulder dystocia. So during her mother's deliveries, um, she both deliveries, she had a shoulder dystocia. So she wants to be able to move freely and push instinctively. Her providers have been pushing cesarean section due to her mother's experience, assuming that she has the same small misshaped pelvis. Here's her mother's response. I had gestational diabetes with the first pregnancy Um, she was 39 weeks and the baby was eight pounds. He had a broken clavicle delivery with forcep and an epidural after pushing for two hours. So that's a good thing to note in this story. Olivia, her other, um, sibling, uh, yeah, was born at 38 weeks and was, um, she was on bed rest from 35 to 36 weeks due to preterm labor. Um, Olivia was born at eight pounds, 10 ounces. So a little bit heavier than the previous baby also had a shoulder dystocia, which ended in a brachial plexus injury. Treatment was physical therapy three times a day with a spontaneous recovery at six months. Um, I don't think the rest of that is important. Um, I remember official diagnosis, but I was told my pelvic bone had an area on one side that was causing baby's shoulder to get stuck on. Bed rest with the last pregnancy from 29 to 36 weeks for preterm labor, that baby was born at 37 weeks by cesarean. When I read this information, my thoughts are this woman had gestational diabetes. I don't know where she's coming up with that. She said that about baby number one. She said that. Okay. Uh, Pushed on her back and likely had a misaligned or twisted pelvis. Not enough in her history to prove to me that it's purely genetic. I have encouraged my client to see a Webster certified chiropractor, which I would recommend as well, and switch providers that support natural physiologic birth. I agree with that as well. Um, My question for you 
is when is there a real quote unquote risk for shoulder dystocia? And I just don't want to mislead her if you do see genetic correlations. Thank you, Tara. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to answer that completely right now until we go through it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to it. Uh, I can just say this. Um, I've never heard of such a thing as a genetic component to shoulder dystocia. I don't know if you have, but I have read extensively on shoulder dystocia. I've not heard family history of shoulder dystocia is not anywhere in anybody's guidelines regarding uh, risk factors or anything like that. Great. Have That's you heard good that? Or, oh, okay. I trust. I trust you that you've read extensively <laughs> on it. Um, and that they haven't found a correlation, but I would say that there are a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, it's not necessarily wives tales, but it's what we pass down in our language and our communication, um, that are just assumptions that happen. Like for example, a cord around a neck, you know, that's something that doctors will say and that get passed down that I wouldn't necessarily know that there's any studies around that either. Right. Oh, I yeah. agree. hundred percent. So. Okay, okay, great. All right. So I have two other uh, notes or letters from people that I'm going to read real quick. And then we're going to take a deep dive, as we usually do, into shoulder dystocia to try to give some truth and also dispel many, many myths. In processing this stuff today, you know, I was actually sitting at the table this morning working on it. And David was sitting at working on whatever David Hayes is working on. Can you tell our listeners, just in case they don't know who David Hayes is? Oh, he's this old scruffy guy that's just happened to rent this Airbnb where I'm staying. No. <laughs> <laughs> David Hayes is a, uh, a very skilled obstetrician. Didn't really start, didn't go to residency until he was in his 40s. So it's cool. a very interesting thing. He was a late bloomer for uh, obstetrics. Uh, he is probably the leading instructor for Breach Without Borders. He works with, closely with Rixa. Anybody who's taken the Breach Without Borders course has either had David in person or seen videos with David uh, doing his teaching. So uh, he's sort of he's sort of a, a loose cannon, and I admire him very much for some of the things that he does. And some of the things he does, I'm not sure that I would do, but that's that's really cool. So that's being an, a individualized human being who, you know, practices differently than us. But yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I so have great admiration, talking, I, great admiration for him. Yeah. So he was talking to you about shoulder dystocia this morning at the kitchen table. Oh, we were saying we were, we were going through some of the guidelines and some of the recommendations. Um, I use the uh, resources I often use for this are the Cleveland Clinic and then ACOG's clinical guidelines. And it seems like everything that when we hear letters from people, what their doctor tells them, like with that lovely YouTube couple that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, where their doctor told them they should have a C-section because of they had a shoulder dystocia with their first baby, which did not result in any injury to their first baby. What these people do is they look at these guidelines and they take the worst case scenario and they use that as how they counsel people, as yeah. opposed to actually giving the numbers, because the worst case scenario isn't really that bad for many of these things. And certainly there's room for alternative choices, but it just seems whatever topic we're doing this, it always seems that the classical obstetrician, I'm not talking about every obstetrician, the classical obstetrician will find the, the scariest things and that's what they'll, they'll focus on. 
And that's what they'll then vomit their anxieties about onto the patient who now has to worry about that for nine months. This is what they do. Yeah. Um, okay. This is a letter. Uh, this is a note from Emmy Robin. She's a doula and she's on Instagram. And she just says, this is brief. She says, I had a shoulder dystocia with my H back, but I was trained in spinning babies with it. So I actually just turned and jumped into runner's lunge with her head sticking out. And then we bicycled my legs and she popped out. I'm not sure what bicycling the legs is once you're in runner's lunge. Switch back and forth? Yeah, I'm assuming. Okay. Okay. I'm assuming. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never seen that happen. Obviously, you're not going to probably be able to do that in a hospital setting, especially if you have an epidural. But um, in the home setting, that's a maneuver I've never heard of. But she, I'm just I'm pointing this out simply because movement is one of the keys to not getting a shoulder dystocia, as we'll see as we talk um, yeah. further on. So um, I believe that that getting into runner's line, so on one knee with the other um, knee up with your foot planted and then your hands are bracing you. I believe that midwives refer to that as the Ina, Ina May Gaskin move. And so from a midwifery perspective, when we talk about shoulder dystocia, the very first thing that we're taught is to change the maternal position. So, um, and that's a very common one that we go to because it does change the angle and diameter of the pelvis with that leg up. So, um, but, but I never heard of the bicycle. That's all. Yeah. And she says it was so cool because I was so calm and I knew it would dislodge with pelvic movement. Good for her. And then she says, um, I'm cutting out some stuff. She says, so ca- so crazy what causes trauma to some is cool to others. And yeah. the only difference is being educated and witnessing a few births, obviously. But so many women who had shoulder dystocia in the hospital had had trauma or, quote, baby was stuck, unquote, story. Um, I had a mom one time saying they were discussing pushing a baby back in and doing a C-section. Like what? (laughs) That's from Amy Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When, when people, when doctors talk about that, um, it does kind of shock me that that would be the option to push a baby back in and wheel her back for a C-section. Yeah. It's called the Zavarinelli maneuver. It's been quoted on it. They even did an episode on the old TV show ER where they had to do it. Um, Nobody does it. It's crazy. It's very, 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 very rare to have a shoulder dystocia that you can't manage pretty quickly. And your, your go-to thing is the Gaskin maneuver and mine. I'll discuss in a bit what I like to do first. Uh, Well, I'll just say it. It's the posterior arm and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. And then I have one more letter. Remind me at the end though, to go back to Tara's question at the, okay. after we're done. Um, good. <laughs> cause I don't have any, cause when I'm on the road, I can't print anything out or I can't think. And now I am actually recording with my computer on a bed because I, the, the apartment is so small and my colleagues are outside, you know, and if I, I can't have quiet peace, if, if, anywhere here so i have I'm, welcome to my world for the last i'm winging it yes i get <laughs> i know that yeah yeah well i don't i don't mind the world it's just uh i i have a you know i'm a creature of habit i'm a bit ocd when we do the podcast and i like to have everything printed out right mm-hmm. so all right this is messages from who's this from this is from uh caitlin and this is from uh my website the birthing instincts uh she contacted me and she said 
I'd love it if you could do a podcast on shoulder dystocia. <laughs> Here you go. There you go. <laughs> My first baby was born vaginally at eight pounds, seven ounces, no shoulder dystocia. I had an induction and epidural with number one. My second baby, who was smaller at eight pounds, was a natural vaginal birth, zero interventions or induction, and had a midwife this time around. I was pushing for two hours, which, by the way, for a multip is a little bit long, and ended up with a shoulder dystocia. Emergency op OB page, so I guess she was having a midwife in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Emergency obstetrician page who did an episiotomy after unresolved maneuvers with midwives. I had zero risk factors. I'm pregnant with number three, and they want to induce me at 37 weeks to make sure he is small enough. Any insight? Okay. Mm -hmm. So we might get back to um, Caitlin as well at the at the end of the podcast, if that's okay. Great. Okay. Uh, that so okay. let's talk a little bit about shoulder dystocia. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna pull something up on my screen so I won't be able to see you for a little bit here. Okay. Don't be mad. I'll be right here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So you can still see me though, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> oh, we just have so much fun. All right. Shoulder dystocia. What's the definition of shoulder dystocia? Okay. Well. Dis means difficult, that's Latin, mm -hmm. and tocos means birth. So I didn't know that, but so difficult birth is the where the word dystocia comes from. Mm -hmm. And dystocia is a condition that happens when one or both of your baby's shoulders get stuck during a vaginal delivery. So obviously Wait. this is a vertex presentation. What? Dystocia or shoulder yeah. dystocia? Because there are other types of dystocia, right? Yeah, shoulder dystocia. Yeah, okay, great. Oh, did I just say dystocia? I don't know. But oh. so if dystocia <laughs> is the difficult birth part, then shoulder dystocia is what is being impacted or what is affecting the birth being straightforward and physiologic. So yeah, yeah sometimes midwives joke around and say there's a fat dystocia because um, the baby's so chunky, but it doesn't, they don't really get, stuck or you have to do maneuvers, but maybe it you have to push a little harder or, you know, those kinds of things. Well, there's all these things out there about, you know, diabetes and macrosomia and epidural, all these things that are that are risk factors for dystocia. So we're going to take a deep, like I said, we're going to take a deep dive into that. Okay. This is, this is what we tend to do on the podcast. And I really, I like when you give me an assignment because it really does help clarify for me and I'm hopefully clarify for our listeners what is real and what isn't real mm -hmm. so that they can take this evidence they can take notes and then they can go to their back to their doctor and say well, something different okay mm -hmm. and uh, we'll leave references by the way the references for this will be in the show notes as always there are no signs and no way to prevent shoulder dystocia period right. love it all right it's important to remember that yeah, because people ask that all the time. Yep, you know there are there are things that may cause it, but there there but most of the time when you have those things, it, you don't get a shoulder dystocia, and most shoulder dystocias occur in people who have no things, <laughs> no risk factors. <laughs> right. All right. Shoulder <laughs> dystocia can be and often is a medical emergency, but babies with this condition are usually born safely. That's important to know. So the first question would be, how common is it? Because we hear we hear different things about that. 
And from what I could find, the shoulder dystocia occurs in about 0.6 to 1.4%, or about 1% of babies that weigh between five pounds and eight and a half pounds, excuse me, eight pounds and 13 ounces, I'm sorry. So between five and a half pounds and eight pounds, 13 ounces, it's about 1% of babies will have that. So 99% of the time, it's not going to happen. Okay. And for and when we talk about macrosomic babies, which is a term I don't really like very much, Bliss, because yeah. macros, macrosomia means over 4,000 grams, but over 4,000 grams is not really that big a baby. It's a baby that's over eight pounds, 14 ounces, I believe. Mm-hmm. So when you have a baby that is above eight pounds, 13 or 14 ounces, the rate increases to five to 9%. All right. So again, that's one in 20 and to one in 11. Where are these numbers coming from? This is coming from the Cleveland Clinic and also from the American College of OBGYN. Okay. So my only caveat with that statistic jumping up so considerably is that we've heard of stories, um, we've read stories on the podcast where someone says, I had a shoulder dystocia, it was 30 seconds, it was a minute, (laughs) you know, where I think the clinician is nervous because you have a larger baby and may actually call something a shoulder dystocia when it isn't actually a shoulder dystocia. So I would just say, you know, take that statistic with a grain of salt because it is coming from, from the obstetrical model. 100%. And we're going to get, we're going to get into all that because it, that is a very, very important point in that they can't quantify it because nobody has that you can't, you can't really define it. So they do give a definition for it, but I can tell you that people will call things a shoulder dystocia outside of the definition. So let's, let's keep going. Okay. Okay. So ACOG says that, boy, bless you are prescient. They said the reasons for the variation in reported rates include differences in the definition of shoulder dystocia. Yeah. Variability between study populations and reliance on the delivering healthcare practitioner's clinical judgment to determine whether ancillary maneuvers are actually necessary. Isn't that what you just said? Only you said it much nicer than that. <laughs> I say it. I say it in regular speak so people can understand. <laughs> yeah, bliss talk. You did. You said it in <laughs> sure. bliss talk. That's really good. Okay. Again, there are no symptoms, and there's no way to predict if shoulder dystocia will occur. The most common way that you can determine a shoulder dystocia is called the turtle sign. Bliss, you want to tell a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, very similar to a breech delivery where there's a dystocia, so the baby doesn't do its normal rotations, and there are signs that we look for to know if we need to step in and help that baby. With a shoulder dystocia, there's also signs. So usually what happens in a physiologic birth is that the head is born, and we would expect on the next contraction that the, the body would be born. Not always, but usually. And so that's something that could maybe put up a little like, hmm, maybe something's going on. But the turtle sign is when the head is is delivered. Normally, the head will uh, restitute. So it turns to one side, which rotates the rest of the body to the oblique so that the shoulders can be delivered. Um, In this situation, the head is born and then it starts to retreat back into the vagina. Not completely, but enough that it's noticeable. (laughs) I wish you could have seen Stu's. hit the sign he was doing of what baby looks like. But the other thing is, is that the head will often start to get very 
dark purple in color. Um, and that is another sign for us to know that we need to, we need to step in. We can't just continue to wait for that baby's body to come. Yeah. So shoulder dissociation occurs when your baby's shoulder or shoulders get stuck behind your pubic bone or sometimes on the sacral promontory. You can have a posterior dissociation too. And the following factors may cause shoulder dystocia. And the term may should be emphasized here. Fetal may. macrosomia. I'm sorry, Blisco. Yeah, you said he said may should be emphasized, so I emphasized it. Oh. May. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Keep going. Okay, sorry. I can't see your face, so I, I didn't see that. I would have caught it otherwise. Um, <laughs> fetal macrosomia, which we said, which they define as baby weighing about again over eight pounds, thirteen ounces, which is about four thousand grams. I think that's one of those even number rule things. That 4,000 just seems like an easy, because eight pounds, 13 is an odd number. So I think it correlates to that. But uh, but most babies who have or over eight pounds, 13 ounces do not have anything close to a shoulder dystocia. So again, there's no predictive value to that. Mm-hmm. Your baby's in the wrong position. I'm not sure what they mean by wrong position. Thoughts bliss? Because do they think asynclitic? Um, what are they talking about here? I would just say probably that the, the baby failed to do um, the normal rotation. That's what I that's what I think that they mean by wrong position. Here's one that that's baffling to me a little bit. Your pelvic opening is too small. All right. Again, Why is it baffling? It's baffling to me because the pelvic opening isn't a, a set number. The pelvis doesn't just have a fixed opening, does mm-hmm. it? Doesn't the pelvis? move? Yeah, the pelvis does move. It, it's not static. Um, in a, a female pelvis, we have um, cartilage and movable, like it has many, five, right, Stu? It has five different bones in the pelvis. Oh, don't, don't ask me that. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's five different bones in the pelvis. I hope I'm saying that right. With flexibility, cartilage and stuff in between. And then the relaxin hormone that happens during pregnancy is intended to make your pelvis be able to be soft and supple and open for delivery. Um, but I think what they're saying, and this is another one of those things like the cord around the neck, is that the assumption is, is that the female, the woman who's delivering her pelvis is not large enough for the baby to come through. And that is a very, very, very rare situation where there would be an incompatibility in those two things because our bodies build babies that will fit. So this is not necessarily about size because we've heard many times about um, babies who are smaller, seven pounds, six pounds, having a shoulder dystocia. So you have to keep remembering that it's more about where as the baby's coming through the pelvis, where the shoulders rotate to in the pelvis, that's the largest diameter for the shoulders to be able to fit through rather than where the pubic bone is. And sometimes you hear a, a doctor say, oh, your hips are small. Yeah. So yeah. You, you, the baby's not going to fit. Well, the, the outside of your hips really has no reflection of what the inside of your pelvis is. So again, these are things where doctors will read something like that statement that says, Hang on, let me find it again. Um, your pelvic opening is too small. I mean, I don't know how you know that. And some doctors will take their, fi- their fingers and actually feel around in there, which is quite uncomfortable. But 
again, you, you every woman deserves a trial of labor. And most women who have what's quoted, quote, a small, unquote, pelvis is uh, will have a normal vaginal delivery without any problem at all. So, again, yeah. not predictable, nothing. But here's the here's the kicker. The last one they say is you are in a position that limits the room in your pelvis. Yeah. What position is the worst position to possibly be in? Lithotomy. Correct. Yeah. Because it um, does, uh, your tailbone moves. So when you're on your back, your tailbone is not going to be able to move backwards to make a larger opening, but will be, you know, pushed flat. Um, And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but why are most people on their back in labor and delivery? And it's mostly because, well, it's tradition, but also because most of them have an epidural. And the doctors feel more comfortable in that position. I wanted to take one little step backwards and say, in regards to the small pelvis thing, it's not just doctors that do that to women. It's other women. And it's, it's women. A lot of times it can be their, their uh, grandmother or their mother or their aunt or something, somebody in their family who was told that themselves. Um, And these are those things that we pass down from one person to another Or, you know, we say things to women like you've got birthing hips, you know, these are all just things that we say, but it really isn't true that, that what you said, Dr. Stu is, is, um, really important. The way that your hips look on the outside does not necessarily, um, reflect how the opening is on the, on the inside. And again, we go back to trusting nature, trusting our body, knowing that we are designed to survive. Our babies are designed to survive. Are we unless we have something like a pelvis that has been injured or some surgery that makes things immobile inside of your pelvis or gestational diabetes or something like that, where you are growing a baby that is larger than it, you know, because of a dysfunction in your body, your baby is putting on extra weight that could cause this misalignment between the baby and, and the mom. But don't, don't just, you know, look at those things or hear those things from your family members or from your cultural um, support system that tell you that you you can't deliver your baby because that's just not true. Yeah, that's really wise. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com- and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. 
So here's what we get to. How, how is shoulder dystocia diagnosed? Well, this is the, the vagaries that you mentioned earlier, but there are three factors that need to be met in order to diagnose shoulder dystocia. One is the baby's head has been delivered, but you aren't able to push the baby's shoulders out. Two is, and the, this is the one where I'm not sure that doctors follow this, at least one minute has passed since your baby's head has emerged, but their body hasn't. And I'm not sure where the one minute thing comes from, but it's it's in the Cleveland Clinic guidelines. So that's the case. And one minute seems like an eternity for most doctors because we're trained in training programs. To, when we when we deliver babies, we don't catch them. That once the head comes out, then you sort of gently put your hands on the head and you pull down to get the anterior shoulder out. I don't think many doctors are going to sit there and wait a minute, let alone two or three. Sometimes I've watched midwives wait too long, what, what seems like an eternity for me. And that makes me sort of antsy. But I think that for most doctors, I don't think they wait a minute to, to make that call. Yeah. And then yeah. the last one is your baby needs medical intervention to be delivered successfully. In other words, you need maneuvers to do yeah. it. That, that's the definition of a shoulder dystocia. And as you said earlier on, Bliss, sometimes, you know, the baby's shoulder stuck for 20 seconds. Yeah. And it wasn't and really a thing, Go ahead. Yeah. And the thing that I want to say that that's different in, in how obstetricians are trained and how midwives are trained and physiologic birth, which is if a woman is having contractions every four to five minutes, her baby's head is going to be born and the body's not going to be born in a minute because the body is not contracting. So you want to look for those signs. You want to look for the turtle sign. You want to look for the color before you jump in and assume that, you know, and wait for a contraction. A baby's head can be underwater even in a, in a water birth for several minutes and it not be any kind of concern. So um, yeah, it was for me. That's the one that I watched one time. It's like, do something. What are you doing? I know. I was just, I was just, uh, it was a Dr. Stew on the couch birth. And so I was just there and. I didn't say anything. And after about five minutes, I finally said something. I said, I think you should go help that baby out. And they yeah. did. But, but they were right. The baby was fine. I yeah. wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just your training. Yeah. Okay. So how should shoulder dissociate be treated? Well, this is a this is a tough one because you know your obstetrician may recommend scheduling a cesarean section if you have diabetes. And by the way, it's mainly for gestational diabetes, not for type 1 diabetes, but they all just they just use the word diabetes, or if your baby is very big. Now, yes, your obstetrician may recommend that, but is that recommendation actually valid? And we're going to get to that in a second. And if you do have a shoulder stocia, things will happen very fast in the delivery room. It does seem a little bit like there's a little panic in the room, usually. And um, they come up with this very interesting thing. I've never heard of this before. Maybe you have this helper mnemonic. Have you ever heard of this? No, tell me. Okay. So, I, they, you know, I think the medical model loves mnemonics and acronyms. They just love them. And this one is called helper. It's one H, call for help. <laughs> <laughs> help! <laughs> e, evaluate for episiotomy. Mm. Right? I have rarely been in a situation where I thought an episiotomy was useful, but it's still, even in the ACOG guidelines, and again, ACOG is not the, the be-all, end-all, because you know I'm very critical of them on a lot of things, but they still have episiotomy as one of the things that you can do if you have a shoulder dystocia. But I'm not sure that that makes much more room than 
than you can do with your own hands and things like that. So, but that's the, yeah, we're, we're definitely taught, um, that the soft tissue is not the problem in a, in a shoulder dystocia. Remember it's the bone being stuck behind the pubic bone. So episiotomy for a shoulder dystocia from a midwifery perspective might be in a case where you feel like it's going to make more rooms for your hands to be able to go in. If you're having a hard time, when you put your hands in being able to maneuver, that's the only reason, but not purely to be able to assess whether or not that is going to bring the baby because it's not, that's not the issue. Good point. Mm -hmm. Uh, L is for legs. Your obstetrician may use the McRoberts maneuver. McRoberts maneuver is where the woman is already in lithotomy position. They just take her legs and push the shoulder, push them back up toward her shoulders. Supposedly this is sort of helps flatten and rotate your pelvis. You've talked sometimes bliss that you make more room actually when you bring the knees together. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. So I'm, I, I, we are taught McRoberts too, as an option after yeah. we've done other things, but yeah, it always does. You know, I mean, you try what you try. That's the whole thing is that you just keep trying until you get that baby released and whatever you need to do. But yes, it's, it's also something to keep in mind that when you bring the knees way out, it does narrow portions of the pelvis. Yeah. And again, these guidelines are in the medical these are medical guidelines because they're assuming your baby, your mom is in lithotomy position. Mm-hmm. You can talk in a little bit about what you do because most of our moms are probably not in lithotomy position when, when a shoulder dystocia happens. So I'll let you exactly. talk a little about that in a second. The P is for pressure. Your obstetrician may use suprapubic pressure, not fundal, obviously, uh, but that may push the shoulder or rotate the shoulder just under the pubic bone at the same time that you might be using some maneuver from below. So, so um, that's what the E stands for. R stands for, oh, excuse me, that's the P. E stands for your op- uh, enter the enter maneuvers. I think they're making this stuff up just to make it spell helper. Um, <laughs> your opposition may perform enter maneuvers or internal rotation. That's where you're taking the shoulders and trying to corkscrew them slightly. You've heard of that, mm-hmm. right? Yep. R stands for removing the posterior arm. Uh, it, I guess there's a name for it. It's called Jackamere's Maneuver. Didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you that for me, that is my go-to maneuver. As a breach practitioner who understands that if you can release one arm, you create a whole lot more room. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't even, you know, again, I haven't had a shoulder dystocia in a really long time, but my go-to maneuver, I, would, I wouldn't waste a whole lot of time. I might try McRoberts, but I wouldn't do well, anything else other than go for the posterior arm. That's for that's what I've found. And from ACOG, they say that recent evidence has shown that delivery of the posterior arm has a high degree of success in accomplishing the delivery. In a computer model, posterior arm delivery required the least amount of force to affect delivery and resulted in the lowest amount of brachial plexus stretches. Um, the use of these maneuvers will relieve 95% of cases of shoulder stocia within four minutes. I mean, I don't really want to take four minutes to do it, but I'm just saying that that posterior arm to to um, to me is the go to maneuver. Yeah. Okay. And the last one. Oh, go ahead. No. So I was just going to say. So you are in defining shoulder dystocia. Talked about that at some point you may put your hands in inter maneuvers. For me, that's when I would diagnose something in my practice as a shoulder dystocia. 
Um, other than that, I would just, you know, use sticky shoulders. If you can change the mom's maternal position and the baby comes out, a lot of times if, you know, we do a lot of water births. So we say like, get first thing to do is get them out of the tub because sometimes what will happen is just stepping over the tub itself will dislodge that um, shoulder. And if that doesn't work, then we may need to get them in a position where we can help out by, by putting our hands inside. And there's different maneuvers that we can do to try and rotate the baby to come out. It's interesting. I've done podcasts before um, with other doctors on shoulder dystocia. And one of the things that they talk about, and you talked about it a minute ago in obstetrics, that once the head is born, there are certain maneuvers that you do to, to bring the baby out, which has to do with putting traction on the head. So if the shoulder is stuck and you're putting traction on the head from above, that's when these injuries happen because the neck and the muscles in the neck are being overstretched. So that's, that is a completely an injury that happens through the obstetrical model and trying to kind of pull a baby out when it's not. So from, from our perspective, if the maternal position doesn't, doesn't help that, and we could do McRoberts and do suprapubic, which means that you're just putting some pressure with a fist on the outside of the woman's body right above her pubic bone and hoping to dislodge that. And we would do these things before we would probably go in to do internally because that could be really uncomfortable for the mom. So that's definitely one of the last things that we do. But yeah, simply rotating. And if that doesn't work, then then relieving that posterior arm could definitely do help alleviate that dystocia. Yeah. Um David Hayes would agree with you that a, a lot of shoulder dystocia, brachial plexus injuries are, are atrogenic in nature. Um, not all of them, though. Um, there are babies born um, without any intervention whatsoever who can have a brachial plexus injury. Um, there are babies born by cesarean section who can have a brachial plexus injury. So not all brachial plexus injuries are atrogenic, but certainly the amount of force that uh, because people start to panic. And your adrenaline starts flowing and then you pull down on the baby's head thinking that that shoulder is going to come with any second and it doesn't come. Yeah. And, you know, you have to not do that. You just have to not do that. Yeah, um, you have to not do that. Right. Don't pan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So and the last one is what you just mentioned was the the uh, second R is the roll the patient. Your obstetrician, your obstetrician may use the Gaskin maneuver and they actually call it that. So. That's she's made it into the big time because uh, yeah. You want to describe that briefly again? So let's say in the situation that you're talking about where you're in the hospital, you're in lithotomy position. So you would roll over to your hands and knees and then you would bring one leg up and you know, different people might have an instinct as to which leg you want to bring up. But I think it's just a matter of trying a couple of things and seeing what, what works. Okay. Runner's line. Okay. So that's what, that's what for the midwives listening, that's what we would do. Um, I think a lot of the rest of this is what, what moms need to know so that they can sometimes counteract the anxiety or fear that might be pushed upon them by, as you said, family members or their practitioner. So what are some of the complications of shoulder dystocia? And one of them is like, uh, you know, extreme bleeding, heavier bleeding and tearing. Uh, that's probably true, but it's partly because I'm not sure why the bleeding other than maybe the bleeding is from the tearing. 
that that because it doesn't make sense that you'd have more bleeding from a shoulder dystocia delivery than you'd have from any other delivery in my um, mind maybe maybe if you're if you're um you know doing those maneuvers it's causing more trauma not just to the tissues but also to you know maybe the placenta or the uterus cuz you're going you're you are entering the uterine cavity you are yeah which maneuver which maneuver goes into the uterine cavity no no no, but I mean, the head is already out. The shoulders are not in the uterus anymore, are they? Well, where where is the cervix at that point? It's not behind the whole baby. No, it's up, you know, it's way up probably on the on the chest or the abdomen by then. I mean, that's possible. That's possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, when I, when I do like, uh, when we do a breech delivery and we're doing love set maneuver and we're sweeping the arms out, we're not going to the uterus. The baby's, you know, pretty much out of the uterus by that point. So I, I, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I, but I suppose sometimes I think the increased force, the, there's an increased risk of uterine rupture. But then again, these are really small numbers, and I hate even saying that word out of my mouth because that they're, they're not that consequential. There was a study of 236 cases of shoulder dystocia that reported the rate of postpartum hemorrhage was 11%, and the rate of fourth-degree laceration was 3.8%. Mm-hmm. So I think that's slightly high. Uh, well, that's certainly high for fourth degrees. Um, and I'm, I think the rate of postpartum hemorrhage is probably in the single digits. So it makes it, it, it is slightly increased, but these are not, these are not things that we can't control and take care of. Oh, I got it. I think it's from the, 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 uh, fear and the trauma. I bet you. Cause when, oh. cause when a mom is scared and afraid, then her uterus isn't going to function as, as well. So if it's not from the force of trauma, then increased bleeding is probably from just, you know, being frightened during your delivery and probably being separated from your baby after. That's actually, that's actually a really good point. That even, that, that, yeah, as a, as a medical, medicalized trained doctor, I wouldn't even have thought of even at this point in my career, but you're right. You're right. That makes that makes more sense than anything else I can think of. So that's probably, <laughs> probably it. Okay. Um, complications for your baby. Um, you know, the most big, most common complication is going to be a brachial plexus injury. That, for people who don't know, is the nerves of the neck that control your shoulder. They run along in your neck. There's a whole branch of nerves there. And if you put torque or traction on the baby's head, you can stretch them beyond the amount of room that they have to stretch, and you can cause them to be damaged in that way. And a large multi-center study that looked at over 2,000 cases of shoulder dystocia found 60 cases of Herb's palsy. That's your classic brachial plexus injury. So that's 30 in 1,000. That's what? 3%. So 3%. Not this scary number that they might throw at you otherwise. Uh, four cases of a different kind of palsy, 41 cases of cl- clavicle or humeral fracture. So 40 in 2,000 is 20 in 1,000. That's 2%. Right, 2%. And six cases of a hy- hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So a total ne- neonatal injury rate, overall injury rate of 5.2%. So in other words, 95% of babies who have a true shoulder dystocia will have no injury. And demise? Zero in this study. Mm, okay. 
Right. I mean, that's an extremely rare complication of not being able to get the baby out at all. Yeah. But right. it does happen. Well, a lot of things happen. Yeah. <laughs> but again, we can't live our lives by the, you know, bad things happen. If you do, if you try to do interventions like inductions or cesarean sections to prevent shoulder dystocia, you're going to cause far more trouble than you could actually prevent by doing something. You should never be, never be doing that sort of stuff. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. (laughs) Really impressed. But the midwife I was with recognized it right away. Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have the prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, for a lot of us to be taking, especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out. And use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. This is needed.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm-hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at this is needed.com. Thanks, needed. Thank you. So, what are the risk factors for shoulder dystocia? Well, shoulder dystocia can happen to anyone. And most cases of the condition occur in babies with normal birth weights and no risk factors. But there are some risk factors, and that would be they say diabetes. But I, I think that uh, it's mostly in gestational diabetes where you get these giant babies. Most diabetics these days are, are not having macrosomic infants. And then they say macrosomia, again, eight pounds, 13 ounces. Being the mother being overweight, but they, again, none of these things are, are significant. They're all risk factors, but that the term, we should call them chance factors, I guess, to be consistent. But none of these are because uh, most of these people, most of the most women with any of these risk factors don't have shoulder dystocia. So right. he said over and over again, it's not predictable. Right. And to intervene because someone is short or because someone's overweight. Or someone is older than 35 or giving birth after their due date. I mean, this is half the people. So you yes. can't you, you, you if, if you have fear in your heart. As a practitioner, you're going to project that onto your clients. You cannot, you cannot do that. And if you're trained in dealing with shoulder dystocia, as all of us should be, 
then it's very, very rare to have one that's really, really severe. As you said, Bliss, most shoulder dystocias, you, you know, they probably might be shoulder dystocias, but you manage them so easily. Yeah. That they really are a problem. Well, it does, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely one of those issues that can happen that is a reason why you may want to have, you know, a provider with you because there are people who, you know, do free birth and stuff like that. And this is one of those things. Although I loved that story that you told earlier where the doula had been trained. And so she knew in her birth to switch positions. But if, if that didn't resolve it, having somebody there who knew what they were doing would be imperative and supporting that baby and coming through the only other maneuver that I didn't, or there's two that I didn't mention, um, is that in a, in a baby that's really stuck that you've been trying to do the hand maneuvers and changing positions and McRoberts, super pubic pressure, all of that. The other thing that we are taught is that you can go in and break the, uh, clavicle bone. And that sounds really awful. But it is something in an emergency situation that if you did that, then the shoulder diameter would be able to collapse a little bit further to be able to help that baby be born. And the other one, I can't remember the name of it, Stu. It's not obviously not something that a midwife would do, but it's something that we know about. Oh, is, yeah. You um, don't want to even talk about that. You don't? You, it's, it's so gross that you don't want to even talk about it. Well, I mean, you just, they might have heard it. So um, what is it called where you um, do the surgery on the mother's pubic bone? Yeah, symphysiotomy. Right, where um, that is cut so that, because there is cartilage there, so that that would um, make more room for that baby to be born as well. And obviously that is extremely rare. And I imagine, you know, I think about when I, when I talk about like international travel and stuff like that, where you don't have, um, access to as many options that that might be the kind of situation where you might need to utilize something like that. But these are again, very, very rare. Right. And, and again, what, what, there are also certain conditions during labor and delivery, which may be risk factors for shoulder dystocia that are iatrogenic. And I want to talk about those because your doctors may emphasize that, oh, if you're overweight or if you're, you're gestationally diabetic, you're going to have risks. But then they, they tell you, we want, to, we want to intervene in your pregnancy, but they don't tell you that those also have risk factors for shoulder dystocia. And they are things like using oxytocin to induce labor, getting an epidural, a long first stage of labor, a long or short second stage of labor. But I'm going to read something and tell you that that actually is not true. And then using inappropriate maneuvers. So there are at, like maybe pulling on the shoulder, like you talked about, pulling on the neck. So sometimes the solution to the problem may cause the problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and isn't instrument delivery also um, a risk factor for? Oh, yeah, resistance? I skipped over that. Yeah, I skipped over that. Absolutely. A vacuum or uh, forceps delivery does increase the risk of um, shoulder dystocia. Mm-hmm. But again, we're using that term, which... I always hate, which is increasing the risk. Because unless you know what the actual risk is, it doesn't really mean anything to increase the risk. You so there's that. a higher chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a higher chance, but what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, twice a small number is still a small number. Right. So let's re- let's 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 talk. Let's dispel a couple of myths here. This this is from ACOG, 
And again, I admire them sometimes for putting this stuff in their guidelines. They say, they look at they look at all these issues and they try to break it down. And they go, increasing birth weight and maternal diabetes have been shown to be associated with an increased incidence of shoulder dystocia. However, most cases occur in non-diabetic women with normal-sized infants. In one study of 221 shoulder dystocia births from a single institution, more than one half of the infants weighed less than 4,000 grams, and 80% of the women were not diabetic. Another study showed that the presence of maternal diabetes and fetal macrosomia accurately predicted only 55% of cases of shoulder dystocia. Furthermore, studies have shown that other proposed obstetric risk factors for shoulder dystocia, including excessive maternal weight or weight gain, operative vaginal delivery, oxytocin use, multiparity, epidural use, precipitous or prolonged second stage of labor are poor predictors for shoulder dystocia. So in other words, we're beating our heads against the wall by going through all these things only to tell you that none of them help you very much. That it's a random act that happens sometimes. But I mean, that's what it is, right? It's kind of like you know, a abnormal mutation in when, when the fetus is, is, um, forming. It's just, it's a random act that happens sometimes. That's not the way it normally happens. So those are not predictors. Correct. And one of the, one of the big things I'd like to dispel is the, that some doctors will use maternal fetal medicine doctors will report the, you know, the, a ratio between the fetal abdominal diameter and the biparietal diameter, if it's greater than a certain number, and I can't remember what that number is, that it's been used as a predictor for shoulder dystocia. But ACOG says the ultrasound-derived fetal abdominal diameter biparietal diameter difference has been evaluated as a predictor for shoulder dystocia. And what do you think they found, Bliss? That it's not a good and not a good way to decide. That's correct. It has not been found to be clinically useful. And yet I know that there are women who write to us that tell us that my doctor says my baby's abdomen is so much bigger, is, is so much bigger than my baby's head or something, and that he wants to do a C-section, they want to induce labor or whatever else. Here's another one where they remember we talked about protracted labor being a risk factor or something like that. And maybe the baby's getting stuck because labor's too slow or labor's too fast. So only four studies have specifically evaluated labor patterns in patients who develop shoulder dystocia or neonatal injury. In three of the four studies, the author concluded that there was no particular pattern of prolonged or precipitous labor that accurately predicted shoulder dystocia or neonatal injury. Hmm. Hmm. So there is no way to predict that. Again, we, that's going to probably be the title of today's podcast is or something like something to do with not being able to predict something. Mm -hmm. um, is there any benefit to plan cesarean delivery for the prevention of complications of shoulder dystocia in cases of suspected fetal macrosomia? What do you think, Bliss? I want to say no. Yeah, well, it's almost no. Uh, <laughs> of course, because they're not midwives. <laughs> right. Elective cesarean delivery should be considered for women without diabetes who are carrying fetuses with suspected macrosomia with an estimated fetal weight of at least 5,000 grams. So that's over what? 11 pounds. That's over 11 pounds. Mm -hmm. And again, how many times do we hear about women delivering 11 pounder? But there is a greater risk. And so that's what they're making. And for women with the diabetes, whose fetuses are estimated to weigh at least 4,500 grams. 
So that's 10 pounds, not eight pounds, 13 ounces. So when a doctor tells you that I think your baby's weight is, you know, you got a nine pound baby, we should do a C-section for you. There's no data to support that. And, and even and even if there's data to support that, we know that ultrasounds can be off by at least a pound. So I, you know, I, I don't, I, we have countless stories that we've read on the podcast where people have been in, encouraged to get a C-section for a larger baby. And then the baby comes out and is nowhere near what they thought. So I would be very, very careful on deciding to do a C-section be, merely because of a um, guesstimate in terms of your baby's weight. Absolutely. Cause they're not going to apologize to you when they're wrong. And yeah, also eight pound baby, seven and a half pound baby comes out. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also most women with a nine and a half pound baby will deliver vaginally without any problem whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the things they do recommend is as a, as a preventative measure for preventing shoulder dystocia is a very interesting one. This is from the Cleveland Clinic. They say, consider foregoing labor medications such as an epidural. Hmm. Yes, I agree with that one 100%. And move around. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Move, groove and move. Right. Because, yeah. And so that I, I, I like that, that they're saying that. Yet, you know, most hospitals, most women think that if they go to the hospital that they want to get an epidural. We've done a podcast on epidurals the pros and cons of that. So, or maybe just maybe the cons, <laughs> there might be some pros in that podcast, but mostly cons. The next thing, is there any benefit to labor induction for the prevention of shoulder dystocia in the setting of suspected macrosomia or diabetes? Bliss? No. That's it's exactly what I wrote. That's a, <laughs> except I put an exclamation mark after it. <laughs> no, um, because you know, go back to our induction podcast. A lot of times that leads to um, an epidural and it's a cascade of interventions. And if you trust your body, you trust that your body's going to build a baby that fits then you don't need to interfere with the process because it's just going to cause a ripple effect. Yeah. And we just said that oxytocin induction and and epidural are risk factors for shoulder distortion. Yeah. So don't do that. Um, so the answer is no. And then um, in a systemic review, there was a conclusion that there was insufficient evidence to inform decision-making regarding the effect of labor induction in the setting of gestational diabetes and suspected macrosomia on the incidence or occurrence of shoulder dystocia. So ACOG says, at this time and until the results of additional studies are reported, uh, they discourage the induction of labor solely for suspected macrosomia at any gestational age. Great. Did you know that? <laughs> Not know until that. today. I don't <laughs> think I knew that either. All right. So what's the prognosis for shoulder dystocia? There's just a couple of things here. If your child suffered a, a brachial plexus injury from a shoulder dystocia, the outcome is generally positive. Because most shoulder dystocia series lack long-term neonatal follow-up and a uniform definition for recovery from a brachial plexus injury has not been determined, it's difficult to ascertain the true rate of permanent or persistent brachial plexus injuries. But in the studies where they look at them, within a few months, more than 90% of these injuries will improve. Less than 10% of a serious brachial plexus injury will result in permanent injury. And again, so we're talking about 10% of 1% of babies under nine pounds, 
We're talking about very small numbers. And then if you've had a baby with shoulder dystocia, because this gets back to the YouTube video that we talked about a few weeks ago, what are the chances of the condition occurring again? And this was where I got some conflicting information, Bliss, because I found that the Cleveland Clinic says it increases your risk by 15%. Mm-hmm. So if you think if you take that literally, that means if there was a 1% risk in your first pregnancy, now there's a 1.15% risk in your second pregnancy. That doesn't make much sense. So I looked deeper into that, and I found it said this in, in another report, prior shoulder dystocia is a risk factor for recurrent shoulder dystocia. I think we've all, we all probably know that. Again, no hereditary connection for, for the woman who wrote in about her mom. I think that was Tara. Is that who it was? Yeah. 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 So no hereditary connection. Um, reports indicate that the recurrence rate ranges from 1% to 16.7%. So there's a wide, wide variation. But I've heard people write to me or they've just told me stories that, you know, they have a shoulder dystocia. Their doctor tells them they have a 40% chance of having a shoulder dystocia in the next pregnancy or a 50% chance. That's absolutely wrong. Even if you take the higher rate of a 16.7% chance, a couple things about that. First of all, that's an 83% chance it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And secondly, most shoulder dystocias are easily resolved. So to have an intervention like induction or even a scheduled C-section for a shoulder dystocia, you know, is a very personal decision that that isn't very scientific and should take into account the woman's desires and preferences and her future family planning. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a random act. Um, that happens. And I, I wouldn't really totally be able to understand how they would even come up with a statistic like that. But um, because of what I said in the very beginning, but I do think that if, if it's something that's affecting your mental state in the subsequent pregnancies, you may decide to do things a little bit differently. Like I had a client um, who had a shoulder dystocia at home with a home birth the first time And the second time she decided she wanted to be in the hospital, that was the choice that she made and that felt comfortable to her. You may decide that you don't want to deliver in the hospital this time and you want to try to be at home. You may decide you want to make sure that you don't have an epidural and that you move around. So these are, you know, that you have a provider that that feels really comfortable with shoulder dystocia and has those skill sets. So that makes sense to me that you may want to, you know, I had a, I had a woman who, um, ended up doing a lot more chiropractic work in her second pregnancy because they had said that she had um, a pelvic disproportion with her baby. And so the second baby she had very easily. So those decisions might be something that you might want to do. And the other thing I wanted to mention, you know, I talk all the time about like your baby's going to build, your body's going to build babies that fit and, you know, would love chunky babies, all of that. But if you have some concerns, there are a couple of things that you can do with your diet to do the best that you can to build a baby that's really appropriate for your body. So one is to lower any dairy in your diet because dairy can pack on some fat and babies. You could try and eliminate some of the carbohydrates um, from your diet and really stick to um, proteins and fruits and vegetables those are things that are within your control during your pregnancy. Um, 
But again, I wouldn't obsess about it. I would, if you're not suffering from gestational diabetes, your body is very wise. Your body is very wise. Mm-hmm. And birth is very normal. And these things are very rare. And they tend not to recur. And some of them are iatrogenically caused. And like you said, I think a very important thing that you said at the very beginning that you just mentioned again now is that what's charted as a shoulder dystocia in a chart may not have been a shoulder dystocia. A true shoulder dystocia will be obvious to everybody. But something that's resolved in 20 seconds or 30 seconds, you know, may have been just somebody being a little overeager in trying to get a baby out before mom was ready to push the next push or whatever reason, and they pull a little too hard and that sort of thing. And and then the baby comes out. I've been in, uh, in the hospitals and stuff where, you know, they'll, they'll push the panic button on the wall. I'll be like, just sitting in the lounge or something like that. And, you know, nurses running down the hall and they say, there's a shoulder station in room four or something. And you, and you, you know, you sort of sneak in and look at, look inside and it's resolved generally very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and was it really a shoulder dystocia? Uh, because that's one of those terms like breach that it's just automatically instills a, you know, an anxiety response in most birth workers. Yeah. And I think that one of the last things I would like to share about shoulder dystocia that I think I learned from working with that client who, deli- who delivered at home and then ended up um, being in the hospital is... For my, for my midwife colleagues, you know, be very cautious and aware, just like, you know, when we use forceps or a vacuum that it can cause, increase the chances of a shoulder dystocia. When you are going in and doing things, we call them um, uh, finger forceps, where we go in and we push the bones open so that the baby's head can be delivered in a, in a long push. Things like that, where you're inter- intervening in the process to get the head to be delivered, you you know you may be opening the pelvis enough for the head to come through, but not enough for the shoulders because the body wasn't ready for that, hadn't opened enough for that. So patience is also really important and trusting that process um, because you know as we talk about all the time, when we intervene, we can cause a ripple effect. So doing that judiciously and respectfully, and knowing that. There might be a reason why that baby's head is taking so long to be delivered. Right. So the last thing I want to say was to finish up on that last thought I had was that because the um, prediction of shoulder dystocia is so small, is so difficult, and because the recurrence of it is, is not that high, and because most subsequent deliveries will not be complicated by shoulder dystocia, the universal elective cesarean delivery for a second baby after the first baby has a shoulder dystocia is not recommended for patients who have that history. So it's not recommended. Great. I think I said, I think I said it was not recommended. I, <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> I think, I it's think not you made recommended, your point. You, YouTube couple, just so you know that. And um, to get back to our two uh, letters, Tara, Again, I think we already covered that, that there is no family history anywhere in anything that says that shoulder dystocia runs in families. Yeah. So, so encouraging her to to do a, you know, a trial of labor and, and her plan to move around instinctively and 
um, not be on uh, pain relief is a good, is good. It's great. And not worry. And not worry. Maybe yeah. you inherited your dad's pelvis. <laughs> that might not be good to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I mean, you know, your dad's your dad's mother's pelvis, your grandma's pelvis you on, your, on your paternal side. Okay. Got it. <laughs> and then for um, Caitlin, who asked this question, she says that she had zero risk factors when she had a a shoulder dystocia with her second baby, which was smaller than her first baby, where she didn't have a shoulder dystocia. She says she's pregnant with number three, and they want to induce at 37 weeks to, quote, make sure he is small enough, unquote. Any insight? Plus, what would you tell Caitlin? Um, To trust her body, to take good care of herself, to, uh, you know, have a good pregnancy and wait for her baby to come and have a provider that feels comfortable if a shoulder dystocia does come up. Yeah, it wasn't because of the size of your baby that you had a shoulder dystocia. Mm-hmm. Because you delivered a bigger baby before that, so it, it doesn't work like that. It's not predictable, and to to push your to think that you're going to not have a shoulder dystocia because you delivered your baby three weeks early, there's no evidence that that's so that's wise advice either. And you might end up with a baby who's not quite ready to come out. Totally ends up with respiratory problems or poor sucking, and then ends up <laughs> with other problems. So totally, yeah. Shoulder dystocia can be a serious event when it happens. Most birth workers are trained very well to deal with it. Most of us know how to deal with it very well. It very rarely causes a significant problem. I think a far greater problem from it is the fear that that it's instilled by by the medical community with just the words shoulder dystocia. And I think you need to back away from that and again, get back to what we like, the podcast like to say is trusting nature and trusting birth and letting nature do its thing and being prepared in any case, but not projecting our anxieties onto the women we're caring for so that then they now carry that burden for eight or nine months uh, in the pregnancy. Right. Yeah. And if you're afraid of birth, find another profession because that's our job. That's what we're, that's what we're trained and paid to do is to be able to handle complications So, you know, just like a firefighter, if a firefighter was afraid to go into a fire, he should find another job. That's his job is to go into the fire and handle what needs to be done. He should become a a firefighter administrator. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what he should become. So good job on your deep dive. I I really enjoyed the um, information that you brought forth on this topic. And thank you, Bliss, for beating me on a Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have, we have a rhythm and we like to, we like our schedule, but uh, we're going to, we're going to, next time we're together, uh, we do a podcast, we'll be together in the same room. Yep. And I can't wait for that and enjoy your time. And um, I know you're going to be training more uh, residents tomorrow. So that's wonderful. I love that you're out in the world uh, reteaching breach just as you intended. Yeah. Tomorrow we'll be at Stroger Hospital in Chicago. And uh, again, I want to thank everybody for for listening and supporting our sponsors. And hopefully if this resonates with you, you'll share this information with your family and friends uh, and, and keep it as a reference down the f- in the future and use it with you. You know, if you go in when your doctor starts to talk about things like this, can, you know, don't be confrontational, but you can use it to ask really good questions and you can see and don't don't let them say the risk is greater. 
ask him <laughs> what the actual risk is. And until exactly. next time. Bye-bye. Hello, beautiful fellow travelers. It's Bliss. I am just arriving here in Yalapa, Mexico, and I'm recording this the day before it's released because it was so important to me to correct um, some information that I was taught. So I referred to the hands and knees maneuver as the Gaskin maneuver. And um, as we said in the beginning of the podcast, this was recorded um, before we went to the Breach and Twin conference in Louisville. And while we were there, someone referred to this maneuver by someone else's name. And so I did a little bit of digging, and I'm very grateful to Lila Wyatt Parkin. Um, and she says, per spinning babies, in the 1970s, bold activists from North America were assisting earthquake victims in Central America. Women among them who were attending births in their community members' homes had the unique opportunity to learn from mid midwives in Nicaragua and Guatemala. These midwives carried an uninterrupted lineage of midwifery skills in their ancestral wisdom. From these midwives, like Etta Willis of Belize, the midwives who were part of the reemergence of midwives in the U.S. and Canada were gifted with the traditional birth positions, such as turning onto hands and knees or all four positions to make solutions for challenging birth easier. In the 1980s, family practice physicians reported on the success found for freeing stuck shoulders by the midwives of the farm in Summertown, Tennessee, led by Ina Mae Gaskin. Turning over to hands and knees became known as the Gaskin Maneuver. Oral tradition tells us that Etta Willis taught Ina Mae. Ina Mae taught my mentors, and so I learned and helped many babies using this maneuver as a first step. I just wanted to put that on the record for anyone who's listening to this episode. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge um, the traditional wisdom that we learn from. Thanks again for being our fellow travelers. And please forgive any funkiness in the sound quality as I'm recording um, on my phone last minute. Sending you all so much love. And until next week, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.